Hello and welcome to another episode of Sex Ed for Sex Med, a premier podcast for those interested in evidence-based sexual medicine. I'm your host, Dr. Terry Gibbs, and today we're talking to Dr. Rachel Pope, who is a uh, associate professor in the department of OBGYN at the uh, University Hospitals in Cleveland, uh, Case Western Reserve. Um, and she's in the Department of Urology as well. She is the chief of the Women's Sexual Health Division. And she is fellowship trained in global women's health, specifically in uh, uh, childbirth injuries, including obstetrical uh, fistula in uh, sub-Sierra Africa. Additionally, uh, she has training in uh, vulvar and vaginal disorders and sexual dysfunction. She provides uh, vaginal reconstruction for women with fistulas, postpartum injuries, cancer survivors, sexual dysfunction, and individuals undergoing gender affirmation. So um, thank you very much for uh, being with us today, um, Rachel. It's it's a joy to have you. you you're not a stranger to the podcast. You um, did a uh, podcast on the sexual health during pregnancy and postpartum, but thank you for coming back uh, to talk about cultural competence. My pleasure. I love this podcast. I listen to it myself. <laughs> there's there's so much to learn, and I yeah. just love talking about the topics that that you talk about. So it's a pleasure to be here. Well, let's let's start it off with uh, you have a podcast, a wonderful podcast that oh, I you. listen to, and it's oh, Humanity. Thanks. It's it's, I know it's a compound of two words, but mm -hmm. would you just talk a little bit about your podcast? Yeah, thanks. Well, I, I feel like um, I've lived in multiple places around the world and everywhere that I've been, including the U.S., I find that women really lack um, some basic understanding of their reproductive organs, of their genitals, and their, their own body parts. And it's not necessarily because they don't want to know, but it's difficult to get accurate information and people look online and there's a lot of really bad information online. And so I decided I wanted to put information out there that was evidence-based and also just to equip women with information about their bodies and answer frequently asked questions. So I see it as it's our humanity, but it's our women's humanity. So I combined that to make our womanity. <laughs> <laughs> clever, clever. That was, that was great. You've had such great uh, episodes. I love the episode that you talked to uh, women from, uh, it was from England and Scotland who had moved mm -hmm. to uh, Mexico and Egypt and right. just the struggles they were having getting through their menopause. And I just loved hearing about people dealing who are living in uh, other cultures, uh, mm -hmm. very different cultures than the U.S. And so great, great podcast. Mm -hmm. I wanted to set the stage for today's discussion because this is so important to me. A couple of years ago, there was a, a, an article, one of the articles we used to help really figure out the curriculum for this podcast and it was written by a, a group of people that work with, in CREOG, which is an organization that looks at the education for OBGYN. Mm -hmm. And what they did is they uh, they surveyed all the OBGYN residents, and uh, they presented them with a lot of uh, clinical vignettes, and and then the, the residents were to read through these and, and talk about how comfortable they were 
in talking to the person and making recommendations. And, and there are vignettes like, you know, a 16 year old seeking contraception. Now okay. the three worst <laughs> lowest scoring vignettes uh, included um, talking to a transgender individual, mm -hmm. uh, talking to a sex trafficking survivor mm -hmm. and a 26-year-old Somali refugee. Now, wow. I'm, I'm happy to say that this uh, podcast has uh, has had some very talented people talk about uh, transgender care mm -hmm. and sex trafficking. And yeah. actually, they were both the, two of the highest uh, listened to uh, episodes. And, and I appreciated that because people don't know. Right. And so I'm excited about today because the other low scoring vignette was about cultural competence. Yeah. And I wanted to start off and ask, you know, um, how do you use your Global Women's Health Fellowship in, mm -hmm. in, in the United States? Yeah. Um, well, I think I was always really interested in culture. I grew up in a very multicultural neighborhood and city in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. My parents are very active in a church that is hugely multicultural, a lot of different languages um, that I heard speaking, you know, being spoken around me. So I always found it really interesting that there were these different cultures around the world and that they were so distinct from one another, sometimes having overlap, but really... I just was always fascinated by culture. And so as an undergraduate, I actually studied anthropology and specifically cultural anthropology and then the medical aspects of anthropology. And that was where I found really, this was the most fascinating thing where you can see how childbirth is different from culture to culture. You can see how health seeking behaviors are different and even whole healthcare systems are different culture to culture. And that just started making me want to travel. <laughs> and so my travels have helped inform a lot of what I bring into my practice now. But, you know, not everybody can, can necessarily take the time off or travel. I was lucky to use a lot of opportunities in college to travel. Um, I was in West Africa. I was throughout Europe. I went to Brazil and was really studying childbirth for the most part and learning how women saw childbirth, how they saw their deliveries and how they had people like doulas as part of their experiences or how their family was included or maybe excluded. And also looked at how um, the healthcare providers are different who attend childbirths in all of these different places. And so that's, I think all of those different experiences have given me a little bit more information so that when I'm here in Cleveland, Ohio, I have someone from West Africa in front of me, or I have someone from South America, and I, I can use some of these experiences to give me a little bit of information. But of course, there are so many cultures and so many places I have not been that I realize that we have to have a bit of humility. And I think that's kind of what it comes down to is, you know, recognizing that a, the woman sitting in front of me might have a completely different idea about her sexuality, about her reproductive um, health and about childbirth or post-childbirth life. And, um, or if she even wants, if she even is going to have children, you know, and then really asking what is important to you 
what trying to identify what those values are and who's influencing those values whether that's culture religion which is another big aspect of of the way i think women look at this for themselves and then kind of going from there because i'm definitely not an authority on the topic i you know i can't speak for all cultures but having been exposed to multiples then i start to see okay there are different values that shape people's ideas and and feelings about things yeah, I, I think one of the reasons I was excited to talk to you is because of this background, because I think this paper I was talking about talked to residents, but I think it's so true for anybody who's graduated from a residency and has been out for any amount of time. I know where I live in Toledo, mm -hmm. the, the largest mosque uh, in the United States resides, and it took me a while and like you said a lot of humility to find out how i can approach muslim women about mm -hmm. their sexuality and, and it was a, it was quite a journey and i and i just thought you could help us you know get some ideas about yeah. how to approach these women yeah i think it starts with asking questions and asking you know what are your goals what are what's your goal from this appointment what is your goal in general Tell, talk to me about your life and what you've been through, which unfortunately means that you need to dedicate some time, especially yeah. <laughs> first opinion. Um, you know, I, I don't know the details of every religion, but having some information or staying up to date, I think is good for all of us in this field. And especially with female genital cutting, you know, that topic comes up a lot because it's, it's controversial. It is, you know, an infringement upon women's rights and child's rights, but it's also very culturally valued for a lot of women. And I know there are women who come from, um, you know, cultures where that's practiced, but grew up in the U.S. and they will travel back to their home country to have it done because it's seen as a rite of passage. And so kind of keeping up to date with some of that is part of our due diligence, I would say, but then asking questions like, you know, I've had I've had women referred to me for what the practitioner thought was female genital cutting, but actually was clitoral phimosis from lichen sclerosis. And so from the very beginning, I had to ask that patient, you know, is genital cutting practiced in your family or where you lived? And, you know, I, I she wasn't sure she thought it was, but then she had never been told that she had undergone any cutting. Or, or circumcision. And then I asked her what her mothers or her aunts had told her about things. And for that, you know, this hypothetical situation, she didn't have that information. And so we had to kind of work together. And she wasn't particularly traumatized by what was happening with her genitals or what she was being seen for, but she also didn't have any specific feeling about it. And then we realized, okay, she had never had cutting. This was actually just lichen sclerosis but asking the questions about their background. And I ask, you know, North American Caucasian women, the same things in my intake form. Is there anything from your culture or your religion regarding sexuality that you think might influence your sex life or behaviors? A lot of them say no. And then I do get quite a few religious women, whether they're Orthodox Jewish or, um, or, very conservative Christians who will tell me they're brought up in a purity culture or that there's certain times of the month that they cannot be near their husband or that there's very strict rules or that it means that there's only one partner for their life, you know? So just practicing to ask those questions to everyone and knowing that we 
we can't really assume for anyone that we understand, um, I think helps a lot to prevent misunderstandings and to get at the heart of what is what is potentially at stake for their their gynecological health. And how do you use that information, you know, going forward? Um, mm -hmm. Yeah. That's, that's <laughs> you know, somebody who's very, very conservative and, and it's just the straight and narrow. I mean, how can you help them? Yeah. So I, first of all, you have to find out if they want help, right? So for a woman who's had genital cutting, but sees it as her rite of passage, she might not want any help. But then there's a woman who might've had genital cutting, who sees it as a infringement upon her rights, and she wants to have a restored clitoris. And so you have to find out, first of all, how, you know, does it impact them? Similarly, I have patients with vaginismus who were brought up in a pur purity culture, and they, they want to now conceive, so they got to get past that vaginismus so that they can be intimate with their partner and get pregnant. And so sometimes that helps me understand what the issue is. Whereas other women who've been brought up with the purity culture, maybe don't want any help. They've got their partner they're happy. They don't, they really don't want to talk about sex with me. And so that kind of linking of what the issue is, and then is it actually a problem? Because it might be a problem to me, but not for that patient is I think the next step. Take a moment, if you would, uh, mm -hmm. and talk about genital cutting. Yeah. You know, I, I think this question they ask in the survey about talking to a 26-year-old Somali uh, refugee, I know that genital cutting in that country is very high. And so I think that's that was the point. Right. You, you know, people, we've all heard about that, but what, yeah. what is this, the story on that? Yeah, so there's several different forms of cutting everything as light to just kind of a scar or a prick on the vulva that might really not cause any problem at all to full-blown removal of the clitoris and then suturing part of the labia or the vaginal opening closed so that it makes intercourse more difficult and not pleasurable. Um, it's not really religious at all. And I have a lot of Muslim friends who say, you know, this is not tied to our religion. Please don't be misunderstood about it, um, but it really is cultural. And not all, you know, not all cultures practice it. I spent uh, four years living in Southern Africa and the women there did not practice it. They actually stretched their labia <laughs> to make their labia longer, um, which you could still say is some sort of mutilation, right? And even our labioplasties are considered mutilation. <laughs> but it, again, it goes back to the point of how much does this bother that person? Do they see it as mutilation or do they see it as, as a problem? Now, a lot of people, when you're not familiar with cutting or with the complete um, infant debulation is people are worried when the woman is pregnant, can she have a vaginal delivery? Should I be mm -hmm. uh, removing this? Should I take it apart in order them to for them to have a delivery? And oftentimes, if it has been severely sutured, it will just tear during the delivery and then it can be fixed at that time. And you want to have a conversation ahead of time of what do you want to be done when this tears? I urge providers to not redo things because it sets the woman up for chronic pain with intercourse. Um, but also you have to be respectful that she might want you just to fix what tore and not really undo anything. 
there are a lot of women that I've seen who have scarring over their clitoris and they, I think the intention was for the entire clitoris to be removed, but actually once you remove that scar or open up that scar, there's a whole normal clitoral glands underneath. And then of course the clitoral nerves usually actually are, are way deeper beyond what you're seeing at the surface. And so you can talk to the woman about, well, she might actually still have great stimulation of her clitoris. Does she want surgery to restore her clitoral look um, or remove all the scar tissue? Or is she okay? Because she's actually able to have an orgasm and she's not having pain with intercourse. Um, that's really important because we see people getting surgery left and right, and they actually have function and they're not you know, that it might do more harm by doing surgery and then making them feel like they were really, um, something bad was done to them and they're never going to be the same. They might need sexual counseling and, and kind of that emotional support more than the surgical support. Was the idea of cutting always to take the pleasure away? That's what I understand. Okay. And that you are seen as a woman and you're seen as pure when you've had the cutting. Also that you're not going to have a partner before you are married. And of course that might be different from um, group to group, but that that's what I'm, I've heard the most. And I should say most of my experiences from Sierra Leone where about 90% of my patients um, had some form of cutting done and and they didn't they don't I didn't see the most extreme there I've spent quite a lot amount of time in Sierra Leone taking care of women with obstetric fistulas or childbirth injuries um and many of them just don't have labia minora and they do have a clitoris still and some of them have some scarring on the clitoral hood or on the clitoris uh but none of them who I took care of for fistula repairs asked me to ever do anything to fix you know, or repair their cutting for them. That was just kind of part of their, part of their genital anatomy. And of course, if they wanted me to do something and we had good consent about what the outcomes would be, then I would talk to them about it. But um, in that particular cultural scenario, they have not, you know, those women don't ask me about their, about their clitoris. You know, we talk today a lot now, uh, kind of a buzzword of the social determinants of health. Yeah. And, um, you know, could you take that idea and put it together with what we're talking about with cultural culture? Sure. Yeah. So I would say probably the most important is social support. So we know that when people do not have social support, when they don't have family who support them, they don't have a network of friends or, or people in their lives that would help them if they were to become ill or need extra um, support, literally because of a uh, illness or a health problem, then they do worse and they have poor health outcomes. And if they do get, they're more likely to become ill or have a um, sort of, some sort of health problem. And then on top of that, they're less likely to get better because they don't have that social support. Now there's lots of other aspects of social determinants of health, including um, economics. And so I think we could see why if you don't have a good economic situation, you're not gonna have as great access to healthcare. You might not be able to afford the options that you want in healthcare, especially in our society, unfortunately. Um, and you might not have the ability to access the that ongoing health um, healthcare or the things that make you healthy, like, you know, healthy options for food, exercise, all of those things. Um, food security is another aspect of the social determinant of health. 
smoking, transportation, all of those things are kind of what we see as the social aspects that determine our outcomes. Not only do they determine our outcomes, they determine, you know, that we might even be exposed to things that will make us sick. So someone who does not have as much social mobility or has worse social determinants of health might really only be able to take the factory job after school and get exposed to a lot of harsh chemicals that might make them sick later on in life. Uh, whereas when you have the social support, you have the economic support, uh, you have options to choose what you are exposed to and you have a little bit more agency and you might less be less likely to get sick. And then if you do get sick, you're going to be more likely to recover quickly. I, I think, you know, just for the listeners, especially the, the trainees, <laughs> um, you know, is there a one, two, three approach that um, there's so many ideas here and, and I yeah. know you're. Yeah, I, I know. Having known you, I know you're, you know, not only very uh, talented, but but you're very sensitive. And and I think, um, what are what are some things we can relate to our learners to to mm. start to think about? They walk into the room and sit down, and away they go. Yeah. So I think one of our defaults in medicine is to feel like we have to fix things and to feel like we have to almost save the person and fix them. And we're the <laughs> only hope for this person right in front of us. They call and, it paternalism, isn't it? Right? Yeah, it is. It is. <laughs> you got it. <laughs> you got it. And of course, we want to use our resources to help people. And we want, you know, if we see a woman who's at risk for sex trafficking or we're worried that she's being trafficked, we want to do what we can to help her get out of that situation. And if we see someone who's had genital cutting and we see, oh my gosh, this person was traumatized as a baby and taken against their will. And now they're dealing with this. We want to be able to help them, but we have to realize also that we cannot change their culture. We cannot change, you know, what was already done and finding a way to help them in the way that they want to be helped or that they can be helped in that moment is probably where we need to settle. And maybe that nothing is going to happen in that first encounter. And unfortunately, there's so many times in medicine where we only get that one encounter. And so you might want to present options for a person that they might not take right that day, but they could take down the road. So for a woman who's had general cutting, you might say, it looks like you had this cutting done to you. If that's something that bothers you, whether that bothers you now or bothers you in the future, I want you to know that there are options in terms of surgery, in terms of therapy, and here are some resources. And that's where you want to necessarily leave it. You don't want to say, oh my God, you've been traumatized, you poor thing. I'm so sorry. I cannot believe that that happened to you. Um, let's fix this. <laughs> Right. So I don't know if that helps us show the difference, but we get so yes. eager. Yeah, no, it's well noted. Yeah. Well, that's great. Right. Like we are so eager. And I understand that eagerness. And I think the more junior we are, the more eager we are. <laughs> <laughs> right. At least I'll speak for myself. Yeah, the more yeah. junior I was, the more eager I was. And then you start to realize, okay, you have to meet people where they are and give them those resources that's going to help them and make you feel better too. But really, it's up to that person when it's the right time and when they need to do something or if at all. Um, cause like I said, a lot of women who've had cutting don't really want to do anything about it and don't see it as a problem and you shouldn't make it their problem. There are resources that the American college of OBGYNs have come out with about some of this. Um, and it's, it's kind of general. Would you discuss maybe some of the things that maybe our listeners could 
read and just yeah to, to help them you know, I think take every opportunity to get exposed to other cultures and other people, other, you know, whether it's socioeconomic differences, racial, ethnic differences, or cultural differences, just continue to expose yourself. You can watch movies, you know, you choose which movie you watch. There are, with Netflix, there are so many movies out there. You might have to read the subtitles, but do it because it's going to give you some cultural information if you can't jump on a plane next week and, and you know, travel. That's, awesome. That's an awesome idea. You know, and, and then take every opportunity to learn from your patients, ask them to t- tell you what, what a little bit about their culture, about themselves, um, travel when you can, I can't, ex- you know, stress that enough. It's, I didn't grow up with a lot of money, but the money that I had, even in college, I used for traveling <laughs> and you get, you get those experiences by living through them. And so if you can't do that in your hometown, because you don't have a lot of diversity, Try to go out and, and seek it out or read, right? <laughs> There's so much reading that we could do that would yeah. teach us about cultures and about places. You know, if you have a big Somali um, uh, group or population where you live, get some books out about Somalia and about the culture in Somalia, because there are anthropologists who have studied the culture and can explain it to you and can break it down to you. And we should probably be reading more of what they write. <laughs> Absolutely. Well, you know, thank you so much for for helping us get more sensitive towards this really important topic that I think it's been shown that people just don't know what to do. And yeah. there's talk about it, but people don't know what to do. And I thank you for your, you know, your experience and expertise. Do you have any parting shots? You know, it's like, I think culture is all around us. We should we can look at our own. That is probably the first place to start. I should have said that earlier is identify your own. What are your values? What is it that you want for your life and for your family's life? And then it'll help you to understand, you know, the next person who's in front of you and go through what their values are and what their what they want for themselves. That's where I would start. It starts starts with us, right? Our own reflection. That's great. Thank you for your time today. Wonderful just review of this. Uh, cultural competence uh, idea. Thank you again. Yeah, no, thank you. My pleasure. Thank you for listening to this episode of Sex Ed for Sex Med. Please find the articles used in today's discussion in the show notes for further study. Also, you will find the contact information for our expert today.